Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors and you, our listeners, ask the questions. I'm Eliza Rosenberry, and one of my favorite witchy books is called A Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness, which was part of the, I think it's called the All Souls trilogy from about like a decade ago or so. I think they were very popular books. And then another witchy book that I just have to mention, it's coming out later this fall. It's called Plain Bad Heroines. There's not a literal witch, but it's definitely pretty witchy. I've heard of Plain Bad Heroines and I can't wait to read it. And A Discovery of Witches, I think is a TV show now. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think they made it into a TV show. I'm Tavia Kowalczuk, um, and I love that we're talking about witchy books. Um, I have two, actually two of my all-time favorite books are witchy books. But Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, easily one of my top 10 all-time favorite books ever. There's a devil and an angel, but then there's also a witch. So I love this book. And it's hilarious for anyone who hasn't read it yet. And then the other one is The Lace Reader by Brunonia Berry. This was a big hit like many years ago, probably 10 years ago, maybe more. And it's about a group of women who live in Salem, Massachusetts, and they can actually read the pattern in lace and tell your future. Whoa. I mean, this is not a real witch thing that happens in the real world, obviously, but the author sort of invented it for the book. That sounds so cool. I've never heard of that. The Lace Reader. I'll have to look it up. On today's show... It is the 25th anniversary of the original publication of Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West by New York Times bestselling author Gregory Maguire. And we are dedicating this episode to this wildly popular novel that reimagines L. Frank Baum's classic children's story. Later in the show, we're speaking with Gregory on this auspicious occasion to chat about the beloved classic Wicked, as well as hear about what he's working on now. I cannot wait to talk to Gregory about this book. This is one of my top 10 books as well, right up there with Good Omens. And now we present to you Wicked Abridged. Born green with razor sharp teeth to parents who were a bit afraid and disgusted of their child, Elphaba grew up in Munchkinland, misunderstood by those around her. Smart and opinionated, she's accepted to Shiz, the most prestigious university in all of Oz. There, she meets people who will change her life. Galinda, Bach, Fierro, and an array of talking animals, some of whom are her professors. Alphaba develops an awareness of the injustices around her, of the way the talking animals are treated like second-class citizens, and the way the Munchkinlanders struggle with economic instability. This sensibility shapes Elphaba's attitudes towards the world and are the foundation for how she became the feared wicked witch of the West. Rather than finishing out her time as a student at Shiz, Elphaba runs away from this conventional life, taking up her calling as an underground vigilante, fighting those in power in pursuit of justice. She even finds love along the way with her former classmate, Fierro, who at the time is a married father from the far west region of Oz known as the Vincus. But this happy time is short-lived, and soon Elphaba is alone again after spending seven years in a convent. She heads west to make amends with Fierro's now widow and finds herself called to fight for justice once again when she observes how the powerful ruling class has continued to exploit other groups. Imaginative and brilliantly rendered, Wicked is an unforgettable novel that explores good and evil, power and injustice. What do you think of Wicked, Tavia? 
Oh my gosh. So I first read this book in 1995 and it rocked my world. I had never encountered anything like this before, the way it reimagines a classic book. And I thought Wicked was just brilliant. It remains one of my absolute favorite books to this day. So I had never read Wicked before we read it for the podcast. And I did see the Broadway musical in, I think, 2007 or so with my mom. I found the book really masterfully engages with political issues about justice and compassion for other people in a really powerful way that felt, it's crazy to me that this book was published 25 years ago. It felt so relevant right now. I totally agree with your saying about how it's resonant today, even though it was written 25 years ago. I think that just, you know, proves that when I first read it, I was on the mark for thinking it was brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) But the other thing I love about this book is that it's an object lesson in compassion and the notion that everyone has their struggles and their points of view. So, you know, this idea that the Wicked Witch of the West wasn't so wicked after all, rather just heartbroken, was a groundbreaking idea to me. And I think it's something that is really in the national conversation right now, this idea of, you know, accepting people and trying to understand them where they are. I really admired how Gregory Maguire portrayed that in the book. And he portrays sort of the legend of the Wicked Witch of the West and its evolution So you can see how this person's reputation started from a few small impressions and rumors and became something so defining and all-encompassing and something that people, you know, they hear it and they have an opinion on it, when really the truth is much more nuanced than people are sort of grasping with that sort of quick impression. What you just said reminds me a little bit of the nature of celebrity. Yeah. I was also surprised at... Gregory Maguire's portrayal of Dorothy as an obnoxious little goody two-shoes. I grew up with the highly sympathetic Judy Garland version of Dorothy, and the way that Gregory presents Dorothy in Wicked really helped me reframe the whole conversation about what's happening in Oz. Yeah, I, I really loved that. That was really funny. And then one of the things that I really enjoyed on this reading was the way that the characters have sort of debates and conversations with each other within the scenes about the nature of good and evil, about social responsibility and justice. And these scenes were so dynamic. They would be like sitting around a dinner table or talking with friends at school about politics in the way that, you know, people do today. But it was just really fun to see it portrayed in this sort of fantasy world of Oz, because it allowed us to sort of have some detachment. Like we didn't have assumptions right away about certain groups or classes of people. And so those debates and conversations were really fun to read. I love those scenes. And, you know, I think that Gregory really had so much opportunity to play with that as he was writing an adult novel and not, you know, the children's novel that is the classic original text, right? So it everything yeah. needs to be a little bit more black and white when you're writing a children's book. Yeah. And just for the record, while I did enjoy the musical... I think the book is so much better. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'm really excited to talk to Gregory. Cheers, Tavia. Cheers Cheers to Gregory on 25 years of Wicked. Quick reminder, we love hearing from you, especially now that we're working from home. 
So join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can stay connected with other book lovers and pose your own questions to the authors who appear on our show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash The Book Club Girls. And stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive audiobook sample from Gregory's new novel, A Wild Winter Swan. Today, we're joined by Gregory McGuire discussing his classic novel, Wicked. Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, Gregory. We are so glad you're here. I'm so happy to be with you today. We're going to just jump right in with the questions. One of our listeners, Kim, from the Book Club Girl Facebook group asks, how did the idea of Wicked develop? And I will point out that you then went on to write three more books in the Wicked Years quartet after Wicked came out. That's true. The first one, Wicked, was considered to be what they call in England a one-off, meaning it wasn't designed to be the first in a series. It was designed to be a standalone novel. And in a way, the idea came to me on one particular afternoon, and another way, the idea came to me over a 30-year period from the time I was five and had first uh, begun to watch The Wonderful Wizard of Oz on TV with Judy Garland and, and all the others. And then it developed through my childhood because I played the story of The Wizard of Oz with my brothers and sisters and our neighborhood kids. So I would get a horde of kids together and we'd trunch to the backyard and I would cast a production and I would say, <laughs> you be the Cowardly Lion and you be the Wicked Witch of the West and you can be Aunt Dorothy. And all the kids would behave me because I was bossy. They would do what I said. <laughs> So in playing with a story year after year, one begins to develop, I think, a familiarity with it, and one begins to have an authority over it. Now, authority is a great word because it means command, but it also means being an author, being the one who writes what's going to happen. So I began to shape new things that could happen within the parameters of The Wizard of Oz by the time I was about eight. It wasn't until I was in my mid-30s, though, that I decided to take my lifelong appreciation for this story and turn it into something a little more serious, a little more sober, and a little more pertinent to readers whose brains and minds and hearts and spirits were more developed than mine had been when I was eight years old. I love that answer. I never knew that before. I'm so grateful to know that backstory. So Gregory, to me, in reading the novel, one of the foundational dynamics to me as a reader was the relationship between Alphaba and her sister, Nessa Rose. And both sisters experienced physical challenges. Alphaba is, of course, born green, and Nessa is born with no arms. They're bonded by their family roots, but there's also a lot of contention between them and difference between them. How did you see these two characters as balancing each other out? Well, they, you know, almost literally they balanced each other out in that Elphaba was strong and Nessa Rose could not balance. I mean, literally. So Elphaba propped her up physically and she propped her up emotionally until Nessa Rose, who in my novel becomes corrupted and deranged and misshapen in a moral sense. The physical misshapenness is not her big problem. Her big problem is her moral misshapenness. 
And when she becomes so strong to be able to stand on her own two feet, as it were, and take over in a less than seemly and prudent way the governorship of Munchkinland, then Elphaba is actually free to say, I've done what I could. I've got to get out of here for my own sanity. One of the most, speaking of Elphaba, one of the most unforgettable scenes in the book to me is when Elphaba finally realizes the racial tensions between the talking animals and the humans. And she loves her animal with a capital A professors and defends their rights. And I think this dynamic in the novel is such a resonant analog for all types of inequities in America and the world. What were you thinking about when you wrote that into the novel 25 years ago, and what may it make you think of now? Well, what it makes me think of now is that there are many populations in the world that have been hiding in plain sight, in a sense, from us, or that we allow ourselves, if we live in certain ways, in certain places, not to see whether it be the sharecroppers who pick the coffee beans in the highlands of the Andes and hardly get a living wage, or whether it be people who work in factories in Taiwan to make the $4 shirts we can buy, you know, and, and save all our money for Starbucks. There are all kinds of populations that we are privileged to be blind to if we allow the blindness to settle on our eyes. So I did not want the animals, with a capital A, to represent any specific population, no particular moment in human social history, not the Jews of World War II, for instance, not um, gays and lesbians under the wire, you know, through a huge part of Western civilization's history. I wanted them really to refer to any population that is right among us that we willingly choose either not to see or to demote the, the essential virtues of. It seems like Alphaba really aspires to that recognition and of the other and sort of a broader recognition of the other and justice for the other. And after finishing the novel, I thought a lot about the moment when Elphaba decides to leave Galinda and leave school and run away and disappear into the underground. What prompted her certainty in that moment that this was the righteous path for her? And do you think she ever regretted that decision? You know, she left all her friends and she left her sister to go disappear like this. I think to answer the first part of your question first, what prompted it was, as they say in the Bible, the scales falling from her eyes when she and Glinda went to visit the wizard for the first time. And she realized that the person she had been anticipating as the great savior and the repairer of all her woes and all her concerns was in fact a major cause of the problem. And when she realized that, then she felt the moral compunction with which she was raised by her minister father, she felt the moral compunction not to play on that playing field, but to get out and to live in a different way. The interesting thing for all the ways in which the musical and the book are not alike, the musical really taps into that as being the turning point for the development of Alphaba 
as a rogue agent, if you will, mm-hmm. as a person who has decided I am not going to accept these norms. They are wrong. I can't. And I must fly on my own broomstick, as it were. I'm not going to take the community broomstick. <laughs> take my own, <laughs> my own private broomstick. You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Gregory Maguire, author of Wicked. You can learn more about Gregory's books at bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, Gregory answers more questions. And later in the show, we ask about his literary white whale. So stick around. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by A Wild Winter Swan. Gregory Maguire turns his unconventional genius to Hans Christian Andersen's The Wild Swans, transforming this classic tale into an Italian-American girl's poignant coming-of-age story set amid the magic of Christmas in 1960s New York, available wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. This episode, we're speaking with Gregory Maguire, author of Wicked. For listeners who may not know, Wicked was adapted into a Tony Award-winning blockbuster Broadway play that ran from June 2003 right up until COVID-19 shut down the theaters, tragically. Bruni Slynn from our Book Club Girl Facebook group has a question about that. She wants to know, what do you think about the play since it is so different from your book? You know, I love the play. It's a good thing that I love the play because I'm a pretty earnest person and I'm a pretty bad liar. <clears throat> if, if I didn't love it, I, I, you would be able to tell in my voice. I do love it. I think you come away from the play with some of the same emotions that you come away from the novel. There are three things you get. One, life is short. Two, what you do matters. Three, cherish those you love. Those are three things I wanted one to put down the novel feeling, that it's important what we do with the time we have. And I think one comes away from the play, even if the plot is different, one comes away with the same emotions in one's heart. And therefore, I consider that the play is not an abrasion or an abridgment of my story. I consider that it's the casting of my concerns, using a lot of my material, most of it, in a way more effective for a live audience, but in a way that delivers the same urgent messages. Another member of our Book Club Girls Facebook group, we told them that we were speaking with you, so everyone was very excited. Aubrey asked if we could ask you, if you could write a spin-off story about one character from Wicked, who would it be? Oh, wow. Oh, wow, wow, wow. Well, I do think that I have a little bit of a sense of a backstory for Madame Morrible. And one time I was at a birthday party for Joel Gray, who played the original wizard in Wicked when it opened on Broadway. And I sat across the table from Carol Shelley, who was the original Madame Morrible on Broadway and is the voice you hear on the original cast recording. And she looked at me and she said, I have a secret to tell you. And I said, oh, what is it? She said, I know who Madame Morrible really is. And I said, oh, you do? Gee, I wrote the book, but would you tell me? And she said, no. (laughs) So, of course, she piqued my interest. And I have an idea 
who it is too. But if I ever get a chance, who knows? Maybe maybe I'll reveal it. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> so this actually brings us very nicely into my question, which is about the other three novels in the Wicked Years Quartet. Son of a Witch, A Lion Among Men, and Out of Oz. You cover a lot of ground in these three additional novels and really build out the world of Oz in far more detail than I ever remembered reading in Baum's books. Could you give us, briefly, which is going to be super hard, an overview of the story arc of the other three novels for people yes. who may not have read them? Son of a Witch is about a character you don't see on Wicked the Stage musical. It's the character of Lear, who is, is he or isn't he, the son of Fiero and Elphaba? Obviously, in the play, they don't have a son by the bottom of Act Two. Uh, but in the book, Elphaba is hanging out with a 14-year-old boy who, or who may or may not be her son. She's not actually sure if she ever had children. I guess if you're a witch, you can get away with that uncertainty. <laughs> usually, usually that's a distinct privilege of men. But in her case, now she's not sure whether she ever had any children. But here's this 14-year-old teenage boy. So the story, Son of a Witch, takes his story from the time he's 14 and Alphabet disappears on to the moment when he has conclusive proof whether or not he was or wasn't her uh, son. A Lion Among Men tells some of the same events, but from a different point of view, from the point of view of the cowardly lion, whom I call Burr. Burr. Like somebody <laughs> shivering. Burr. It's also B-R-R-R, -R, which is meant to be a tip of the hat to Bert Lahr, whose name begins with B and ends with R, Bert Lahr, hmm. who played the cowardly lion in the 1939 film. Finally, Out of Oz tells the story of Lear's daughter, and it ties up some of the threads from L. Frank Baum's other Oz books, including whatever happened to Ozma, the Queen of Oz, who disappeared and was perhaps murdered like Anastasia in the Russian Revolution when the Wizard of Oz came onto the throne. So the story finishes up that cycle of the witch's history and times and life by revealing what happened in that story arc and binding Ozma's story with the story of the family of the Wicked Witch of the West. The end of Son of a Witch is just so marvelous. I just love the ending to that book so much. I remember feeling so lifted up. I'm so happy to hear you say that. And you're not the only one to say that. It's one of those few endings that like works. <laughs> <laughs> So, Gregory, we know that you've written many non-Oz books in the years since, and we're dying to know what is your newest book. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yes, I have a new book out called A Wild Winter Swan. It takes place in the early 1960s in New York City, but it has that magical interface with a creature who falls into the life of a 15-year-old girl on the Upper East Side of Manhattan on a snowy evening right before Christmas in 1962. What a wonderful premise for a book. I can't wait to read it. So Gregory, every episode we ask all of our authors the same final question, which is what is your literary white whale? So this is a book that you've either always meant to read or one that you've sort of started reading and just have never finished. Oh boy, that is a really 
Good question. And I'm going to be honest. I have read Pride and Prejudice. I think I've read it several times. But have I ever loved it? No. No. Uh, I love English fiction. I love fiction by women. I love British fiction. I love British history. And so in a way, I feel I'm going to answer this question by saying I'm not sure I've ever read it. You know Mm. what I mean? So mm-hmm. You can read things without getting them. I love that answer. I don't think we've had that kind of answer. Oh, good. Well, no, that's a new take on it. Well, Gregory, thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely a pleasure. I may have fangirled a little bit. Please forgive <laughs> me. <laughs> thank you so much for joining. Back at you. I admire what you do. I think what you do is important. And hello to all the listeners and to people who sent in their questions. It means so much to a lonely person working in a in a room without anybody else to know that people care about the work that they've produced from being alone for so much of their lives. I really appreciate your vote of appreciation. That was Gregory Maguire, whose new book, A Wild Winter Swan, is out now. To find out more about Gregory's books, including Wicked, and how to buy these books, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything else mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and leave a review. And another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast is to tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You'll hear from us again in two weeks in a special Halloween episode where we'll be speaking with number one New York Times bestselling author Joe Hill about his collection of short stories, Full throttle. But you can always stay in touch with us between episodes. We're both on Instagram. Find us at Tavia Reads and at Eliza is Reading, and of course at Book Club Girl. You can join in on one of our upcoming conversations. In a few weeks, we are interviewing Jennifer Robeson about her historical novel, The Gown, which is a conversation we're super excited for. If you have questions for Jen, please post them in the comments on our Book Club Girls Facebook group or call us at 212-207-7336. You can also send us an email, thegirls at bookclubgirl.com. We would love to hear from you. And if your question gets asked on the show, as always, we will send you a free book. Before we go, a big thank you to Charles de Montebello, who produced today's episode, and to Gregory McGuire for skillfully setting up a remote recording studio in his home for this episode, and to Cassie Jones, who has been there since Elphaba was born. Until next time, I'm Eliza. And I'm Tavia. Happy reading. Knuckles of Hail wrapped against Laura's window with a musical jumpiness. Hardly tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, though, when the room was an icebox. Coming downstairs to get warm, Laura trailed her hand on the greens wound round the banister. This raised a note of balsam in the air, but she knew better than to trust the false hope of the holidays. Every green garland ends up in the ash can. She paused in a silence rich and pertinent to herself, if to no one else, and told herself into the moment. Not a silent narration spoken in her mind, 
but a story as it felt, something more or less like this. In the city of New York once stood a house on Van Prine Place. It was owned by a fierce old Italian importer known as Ovid Ciardi, of Ciardi's fine foods and delicacies. His stout, hobbly wife lived there, too, griping the whole live-long day. Their granddaughter had come to live with them. Nobody remembered why. One day, she walked down the shiny, fancy stairs to find two workers in the front hall, fellows who had come out on a Saturday, no less, to repair the grouting of the stone window sills on the top floor but they were puttering round here instead. One was climbing a stepladder that had been set up in a circle of plaster dust and fallen fragments of ceiling. They didn't notice the girl. She was fifteen and had long brown hair, very straight. She wished her eyes were mossy green, but they were Italian brown espresso brown. The workers didn't notice her eyes or her. They were staring at something else. That was as far as she could go. She didn't know what happened next, because it hadn't happened yet. What are you doing? From a hole in the plaster ceiling, John Greenglass withdrew a baby a baby something, an owl, it was still alive. This is an item, said John. The author doesn't always know what is going to happen, what their message is going to be. Just as a reader explores the story, as you came into the story without knowing exactly what it was going to give you, I wrote it without knowing what it was going to give me. When I started writing it, I thought I was going to be writing about a character like Hannibal Lecter or, oh. or Humbert Humbert or wow. you know, some, some terrible <laughs> psychotic um, sociopath. Indeed, I used to sing to myself, Somewhere over the rainbow She's there too And the dreams that you're scared to dream Really do come true I thought I was going to be writing The biography of a monster yeah. And then she showed herself to me She was the other But the more I looked at her The more depth and the more humanity I saw in her. Mm -hmm. 